0: This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney Pixar's Inside Out 2.
1: It's time to
0: greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! (sighs) Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! (gasps)
1: Sadness
0: is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the Big Travel Podcast. It's me, Lisa. We're still in lockdown here in London, as we probably will be for a while by all accounts. I was meant to go to Spain this week and I'm pretty devastated I'm not going. I mean, obviously, there's bigger things at stake than um, holidays, but I know that the people who love travelling amongst us will be feeling the sting a little bit. And, you know, that's okay. It's okay to be annoyed and upset and frustrated about not going places and it doesn't mean you're you're not worried about the world and the health of the people you care about and everything. I don't think the two things are mutually exclusive. In terms of what we're doing here at the podcast, we're carrying on as normal. I did last week talk to a couple of people in lockdown in Madrid and also in Connecticut and I might be doing that again, speaking to some other people around the world just because it's kind of interesting to know what other people and other podcasters and journalists and radio presenters and just people that I know really might be doing around the world but I do have a good few episodes in the bag here and recorded a few weeks ago all of them now so that brings me on nicely to today's guest Reporting on wildlife conservation, threats to ecosystems and fragile cultures from remote corners of the world is travel writer Sophie Roberts' passion. She cut her journalistic teeth with Jessica Mitford, the famous writer, then ditched an enviable job at Condé Nast Traveller to tell stories often not told. She's diced with danger in Papua New Guinea, protected elephants in Chad, fallen in love with the forests and people of the Congo, and for her debut book she crossed the wildest parts of Russia in her quest to tell the fascinating stories of the lost pianos of Siberia. Sophie Roberts is on The Big Travel Podcast. I've been looking through your book and it sounds, it sounds like an incredible adventure. A lot of research has gone into it. Why don't you start off by, yes, telling me who you are and then we'll go into a little bit about the book. Great. My name's
1: Sophie, Sophie Roberts. I'm a travel writer, journalist. I'm not a musician and I'm not a historian, but I am a traveler and a really passionate one. I'm British. I was brought up in Scotland. My father's of American descent. And my mother's of Irish descent. So I've always been slightly rootless in the places where I've lived. But I was brought up in a rural place. Um, my father was fish farming. And so I was always used to occupying my own time. I've always been a reader, and I've always, always had a huge lust to kind of see what was on the other side of a pretty empty horizon. And I didn't go away until I was 15. I went to France where I had an uncle living there. And then I didn't step into anywhere further than France until I was 18, um, which was my first big trip. And that was when all the worlds I'd imagined in books and had hungered to, to to visit, Began to become alive, if you like. Um, so that was the beginning of of, of my commitment,
0: passion, and obsession. For Do you travel. think the the impetus came from the world of your imagination, the world that you'd created through reading so many books?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think books are a really, really powerful transporting power, and for sure. But it also what i found when i was on the road is that there are so many stories that aren't told and that was the great privilege of journalism is that you get given a free ticket to ask questions that other people can don't have the same license to um you can cut through conversations much quicker and find a common point and a sense of humanity with a greater speed and ease. And that is a, that to me is a privilege of being a travel journalist, not just a traveller.
0: So what was that first trip, the 18-year-old trip?
1: That was to India. My grandfather had left me enough money to get a ticket, so I went to India. And it was at a time when India is now, um, uh, you know, it's a highly commercial tourism experience and pretty expensive. But back then I could do it on a dollar a day, two dollars a day. And um, it was great. To me, it was, you know, it was a lot of the um, clichés for sure. But it was also, I felt very safe there as a woman. I found my confidence as a single female traveller. I'm quite tall and I felt really comfortable. And that gave me confidence, I guess. And it also gave me a fed romance. Uh, It fed this interest I have in... Um, the extremes of society and culture, not just um, um, either the oppressed or the elite.
0: I think India is, it it can be hard work. It's incredibly beautiful, but it can be hard work, especially as an 18-year-old. Or do you think because an 18-year-old with quite wide eyes, you were able to adapt?
1: Yeah, I think I like travel that reminds you how to feel. So sensation, in the truest sense of the word, Um, what are your senses? You taste, you hear, you smell, everything. And India stimulates that in a really pretty profound way. And it's something I've found in all the work that has excited me since. If I go into, and I've had periods of my life where I've had to earn my living writing about smart hotels... And there was sounds one awful.: It sounds awful, but just to make a point is, um, I was in one room in the South Pacific. It was exquisite. It was a place Hollywood people go and spend a lot of money. But it was also one of these hotels that was so technologically advanced, it, the windows don't open, and it was so eco-perfect, the air conditioning system meant that it was hermetically sealed. And I lay in bed in this room thinking, oh my goodness, I can see the palm swaying, I can see the waves crashing, and the next time I'm not going to be able to smell or hear those things, I'm going to be hermetically sealed in my own coffin. So it's, to me... You have to really feel a place. That's what gets the blood going. And while we all travel for different reasons, and I respect the fact that sometimes you just want to lock out the world and, 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 and go into yourself, I'm more of an extrovert. I want, to, I want the blood to flow a little bit faster through my veins from the
0: act of travel. I can really relate to that. I mean, I have been lucky enough to do a lot of luxury travel for work, and you do feel closed off from the world, that you're not getting that cacophony of noises that you would be in India, you know, the sights and sounds and the smells of the streets and the cooking, if you're in this beautiful five-star hotel, lovely as it is, I'm not complaining, I like both those things.
1: Yeah, I'd agree. It's, it's a version of paradise that is a version of paradise, but I find myself even, I mean, I've done a job on a cruise ship, but I always found myself pulled into the bowels of the ship. Where the guys that are working on the ship, where their conversations are more direct, genuine, their their stories are, are are more human than the ones on the top floor, where it's more polite and where where the experience is polished. That to me is one version, a very relevant version of travel to people that need that break from
0: reality whereas i want to travel in order to engage with reality if that makes sense so i'll do this chronologically because i really can't wait to get onto your book but i'm going to pace myself because you're 18 you go traveling to india what happens next um, I,
1: was, I trained as a journalist and I worked for a while for a brilliant um, lady she was one of the Mitford sisters called Jessica Mitford and she was um, doing a revision of her 1963 bestseller The American Way of Death so I spent some time learning the techniques of investigative journalism if you like And she gave me a lot of confidence and encouraged me to get some training. So I did. I studied in America. I um, I studied journalism and it gave me the rule book, if you like, um, which was really important. I then got my first job. I was really lucky. I got my first job at a magazine that was launching here in the UK under an editor. I'd I'd made tea and coffee for at some point um, in a British newspaper and it was called Condé Nast Traveller. And I was on the launch team for that. And and it was an exciting time, and it was completely new to me because I'd really never stayed at a smart hotel in my life. It wasn 't part of my history, my family, or frankly the kind of any kind of relationship with the background I came from. But it was exciting, but it was also I realized I, being in an office, reading about other writers' travels was, was, was kind of like being stabbed in the heart, you know so I, I handed in my notice. Um, when I was two years in, and I went in on a Wednesday and my editor said to me, he said, why are you coming in on a Wednesday? And I said, because it's my two-year anniversary. And it was the promise I'd made myself that I would learn the ropes and do my apprenticeship under some brilliant, brilliant mentorship because those editors were was phenomenal. But then I had to take the risk and go free. And I wasn't earning a huge amount, so the loss of, of that was was not a big deal. I just had to
0: get out in the world and do my own reporting. So that's what I did. I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole with it but working for Jessica Mitford wow I mean that is quite a significant job I mean she's such a you know her and her family I mean she's the one that she's the non-fascist one isn't she yeah, yeah, she's she the was left, a yeah Decca. she yeah. was known Decca, as that yeah one, yeah, yeah yeah she's the non-fascist one which is good she yeah. was very left leaning she she went was to brave Spain, didn't she yeah. when she was very young to help fight the civil war as a lot of left leaning people did yeah she was really really brave and it's funny how she taught me about
1: risk and she also had the oh my i still have all the correspondence i must give it to the family in fact but she she did all her correspondence written no email it was so i've got this collection of letters and faxes including letters and faxes sent three ways with her sister who was the duchess of devonshire Um, and she was just i mean what i learned from her was um was risk and bravery are important, and a moral conviction is really important. And um, uh, you know, she passed away after I think I'd worked for her for about a year. But it was a precious moment. It was inspiring. You know, she was an icon to me as a writer and a and a and a, and a free thinker. But it's funny because this book I've done on Siberia, um, I it's really extraordinary. Her son is one of the world's great piano tuners, so he helped me understand the mechanics of an instrument of which I had no understanding when I uh, set out
0: on this particular project. Well the book is something I we're going to get to pretty much in the next two questions okay so because the book is phenomenal and very travel focused but travel highlights after you left Condé Nast before you write the book.
1: So I had to do a lot of bread and butter earning, so I did a lot of hotel work, to be honest. I mean, that's the commerce of of, of being a travel writer is has changed. You can no longer um, write great, great poetic pieces about finding I, myself, and someone else in some lost desert. You know, you have to earn your money writing about smart hotels in the Maldives. So I did that for uh, for a period of time. But I suppose something happened when i started going closer and closer to the edge by which i mean a lot of people are in the space that i belong to there's a lot of travel writers out there so how do you distinguish yourself and i one i like to do it through collaboration So working with brilliant photographers and it opens up a whole new way of looking at the world. So finding those collaborations became critically important. And the other thing was stepping into the areas where there was fear. And that meant beginning to move into those areas that are sort of marked up red on the map. Because there is still something worth recording, reporting, seeing, feeling and understanding. So while never to gloss over political horror or human rights issues or conservation crises, I still think journalists need to go into those areas to look for another side to the narrative. And that became very important to me. So I suppose a a sort of key trip was probably Chad. I went to Chad, it was in 2015, And I was working in the South, and I was one of the first journalists in to report on this incredible work that they were doing to um, using tourism and the money from tourism and the attention and positive energy that comes from tourism to help tell the tale of a remarkable turnaround story with elephant conservation there. And that is still flying well and high, and it's amazing. You know, these elephant herds in Chad in 2015 the matriarchs, the, the, the mother elephants, would circle the baby elephants in like a whirlpool to protect them from firing of AK 47. And that was how the behavioral patterns had changed. And now the elephants no longer whirlpool they are settled, they feel safe because of the extraordinary work by an organisation called African Parks. Um, So to go in there as a witness to change has been really exciting. And also to Chad is not somewhere that should necessarily be at the top of every bad bad list. Um, I've just come back again from Chad, from the Anedi Desert in the north, which again is marked heavily red on the map. But there's another narrative that needs telling. So what is the situation in Chad? I know nothing about Chad, I have to admit. Well, you don't want to be a woman in Chad. It's incredibly poor and it's got huge challenges and those should not be underestimated. But the other side of it is it's got amazing territory these up in the north the anedi desert and Tibesti, these mountains are like um it's like going into a set from star wars and there's no one there apart from a really ancient nomadic culture and some of the oldest rock art in the world extraordinary rock art there was one that i encountered which was in A rhino, a rhino, which would speak to the rhino possibly, very possibly, once being endemic in that area. And so it tells a story of human history. It tells stories of shaman history. It tells stories of a very, very old Africa in a place that no one goes to.
0: We love stories on the podcast. So what's your Chad story? What was the most fascinating interesting standout moment from that trip to the desert how big the
1: world still is i think it's a it's even kind of the story is still to be published in the financial times but how reaffirming it is that there are some new things under the sun that's exciting and that sort of sense of optimism is really important to the work i do it's it's a travel Travel is a real force for good in so many ways. It's a force for good economically. It's a force for good philosophically. And it creates connections between people. And it's getting a hard time at the moment because of climate change, because of this terrifying virus. But it can be a real force for good. And I felt that for so many reasons in Chad.
0: It's conflicting, isn't it, with the whole environmental issue? It's something that we're facing head on on this podcast, speaking to my friend Lucy Siegel, who's a passionate uh, advocate for environmental issues. Do you think somewhere like Chad will be opening itself up to tourism? I see more and more people going on excursions in what would have previously been no-go areas and people being a lot more adventurous with their travels and obviously tourism is a double-edged sword but you know it, it does bring some positive things.
1: It's a niche market. It's, of course it's going to be a niche market. Um, the, and my business is not necessarily to manage other people's risk. It's, I take my own risk and I, am, I, I take, make good research about it and then I write about it and it's up to the individual whether they choose to go or not. I mean, the other place where I've worked quite a lot is the Congo and the DRC is full of risk. Will it open up to uh, tourism more than it is now? Yes and no. The masses are never going to go in there. But people who are interested in the issues who are travelling, and that I think is becoming a more pronounced strand of the, of, of the travelling public, is people are travelling towards issues. They want to understand them. They want to, they, want to, they want to connect. They want to be moved. They are more aware of how they can contribute to conservation or to women's rights, whatever it might be. And if that means taking some measured risk to go into
0: these places, then it's worth it. You, do you ever feel threatened? I mean, you are tall, blonde, blue eyes, clearly British or European. Um... I
1: I do and I don't. I mean, I'm careful. I was given some very good advice, which was never go into a situation which you don't know the way out of. Um, and so I am always really aware of what, where the door is in the room, so to speak. I had one case. I have to think on my feet, and sometimes you have to use your gender to your advantage and pre- not pretend it's not there. So I was in Russia. I was in the far north in Russia. I was in a, the Yamal Peninsula up in the Arctic. And I was staying with an indigenous group of people and um, out of nowhere, I mean, this is a remote area, out of nowhere, about 20 snowmobiles turned up with men, Russian men, big Russian men, big, strong Russian men who wanted a drink. And they came in, they walked into this, um, this sort of encampment that I was and uh, they wanted to do toasts. And I knew and could feel where this was going. And the community I was sort of scattered. And um, I was with 20 big tough Russian men. And they were we toast, we toast. And I stood up and I took my cup of vodka and I put my hand on my belly and I said, I'm going to drink to my child. And I wasn't pregnant, I'm way beyond those years. But they stood down and they were so respectful. They showed me to my where my tent where I was sleeping and they couldn't have been more charming. And so that was a case where I had to think on my feet and it helped me. But, yeah, sometimes it's difficult. There's sometimes I've, you know, I've, I've had tricky times. Papua New Guinea is tricky, very tricky um, as, a, as a woman.
0: Um, but like I say, I, I, I don't travel foolishly. I know my way out. What's uh, what's the deal with Papua-, Papua New Guinea? I haven't been there either. You're, the, the, these countries you've been to, and I just sort of feel like I'm lying on a beach somewhere,
1: if I'm not. <laughs> no, like, Papua New Guinea, I lay on a beach. You uh, yeah, it has beaches too. Uh, Papua New Guinea, New Guinea, I find really interesting. You know, I was the f- one of the first stories I did there was in the Sepik River, and it was a traveller who was a real influence to me, um, a guy called Mark Shan who'd done a, a trip in West Papua and. Uh, a river journey and I wanted to go into a place where the phones didn't work and and just kind of there was a particular reason there was a particular um, indigenous group I wanted to go up and um, how did I find it it's you know it's fierce you can move two miles upriver and the indigenous groups speak different languages it's hard the the position of women is 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 really hard I saw and heard things I never wish to see or hear again, including a rape. You know, it's, it's a hard culture. But there are things to understand in visiting it. I was really, I fell in love with the um, Solomon Seaside of Papua, um, where there is a kind of, there's, a, there's a, a different groups there. There are amazing bits of history It's hard to travel, the logistics are hard, there's not a lot of roads, you know, they've got a lot of helicopters, the oil and gas industries, etc., but there's not a lot of roads. I found it, I think I've been there three times now. I like it, but it's, you know, it's not
0: an easy narrative. So I think we should get on to Siberia. You're not a musician, but you've been fascinated by the history and integral culture of pianos and how they got to Siberia. I know nothing about the piano the the whole piano-Siberia connection? Well, it's an odd one. There's no reason why you should because
1: it's a strange... um, It's a strange... coming together of some ideas basically the genesis of the book The Lost Pianos of Siberia does not actually begin in Russia it begins in Mongolia which is a place I love I've been many times I have two children and we go there as a family and there's a particular valley called the Orkon which is about eight hours drive outside the capital Ulaanbaatar and in this valley um, there is a family a German gentleman and a Mongolian wife and they've got three kids and the youngest daughter was learning piano and her teacher was a brilliant musician, a, a, a constant musician, who would come out for two or three weeks to, to teach. And she was playing there in the summer of 2015 on a grand piano. It was a um, Yamaha piano. It was nice sound. Um, but the German, as she was playing some Bach, leant over to me and said how I long for her to have a, one of those lost pianos of Siberia. And he threw that phrase out to a storyteller for a reason, it stuck, it stuck so hard that when I went back out to Russia on an assignment about a tiger conservationist, I started to dig. And what I discovered was this extraordinary connection between um, piano fever, in Russia in the 19th century, early 19th century, in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And it spread out of those kind of glittering diamond-filled salons across the Ural Mountains into Siberia. The pianos traveling with governors, governors' wives, um, uh, noble exiles, misfits and mavericks. And, you know, these are instruments that were carried to Siberia on the backs of sledges. And that absurdity and romance kind of piqued my interest. So I started to look for a piano for this Mongolian concert pianist. And it led me on a kind of extraordinary, uh, I think I spent 158 days on the road in Russia. Um, from, and my Siberia was from the Ural mountains all the way to the Pacific. I, I, Siberia isn't quite a place, it's more of an idea. And I went by Anton Chekhov's description. He traveled Siberia in the 1890s, which is Siberia begins in Ekaterinburg, the city in the Urals, and ends goodness knows where. And the goodness knows where was my poetic license. So, yeah, all the way to Kamchatka the Commander Islands, the kurils It was really exciting. Tracking down pianos. Yeah, tracking down pianos in crazy places um, and, you know, you, where they washed up and how they arrived there and, more importantly, the people that protected them and continue to love and adore these instruments, not because they've got a beautiful sound. You know, music historians would be appalled by some of the pianos that I found so endearing. But uh, the fact that someone cared, against all odds, you know, Russia has a really, really traumatic history. So those pianos allowed me to tell the story story of 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 kind of human solace um uh, uh, in times of darkness what's the most unusual place or situation you found one of those pianos in right at the beginning of my search i was sent a photograph of a piano in a volcanic caldera with a little gathering i think there was about 10 or 11 people listening to a piano in kamchatka which is so cool Kamchatka sticks out into the Pacific. There's no road connecting it to the rest of Russia. On the board game Risk, it's the best place to make an attack on North America. It's got 500 volcanoes down this crazy ridge. It's so fire and ice. And the fact that a piano had been brought into one of these kind of calderas in the back of Beyond as a sort of natural amphitheater for a performance speaks to the way... The the eccentricity of the whole thing, but also the way that um, piano culture runs through Russian society, like blood, you know, it's there in a really highly educated um, way that maybe has been lost in my own country. But you were sent the photo,
0: and did you? Go I was there? sent the did photos. Yeah, yeah.
1: I was sent the photo, and what I did was the I tracked down the gentleman who sent it, and I went to visit him. I went to Kamchatka, I think, twice in the end, and together we looked for a particular instrument. There was a wonderful instrument that was brought to Kamchatka in the 1930s, um, which was the gentleman that brought it said at the time it was the equivalent of taking a, a piano to the moon, and. That led back into other stories an uh, uh, amazing piano that was taken to the, uh, to the wife of the governor of Kamchatka in a very early 19th century. And that took possibly the longest journey of any piano that I found because it didn't go overland. It was too forbidding. It went uh, around the horns. So it did a proper circumnavigation of the world to get to Kamchatka on the other side.
0: What other lost pianos stick out?
1: Well... The broken ones, there's so many. I was very interested by a piano I found in a small village outside of a city called Tomsk, which was acquired for the price of a bag of potatoes. So And that was a wonderful grand piano, sort of late, um, I think it was early 19th century, late 19th century. That was a good one. Um, and there's, there's one, you know, I think pianos that the travellers would enjoy. is There's a wonderful piano in Kutsk. It's a well-known piano, which belonged to a princess called Maria Volkonsky, who her husband was banished as a revolutionary in 1825, I think it was, as one of the Decembrists. And she went out to join him in prison and she dragged behind her on the back of a sledge across a frozen lake by Baikal, this piano wrapped up in furs, and it was a clavichord. And then as she settled, after their hard labour sentences were up, shackled to jails, she had another piano delivered, a Lichtenthal, which you can find in a beautiful museum in the city of Irkutsk. So it's full of mad sort of stories. Well, often what's missing as well, I think it's important, often what's missing tells just as bigger story is what you find so some of the pianos I didn't find the actual object but in seeking the possibility I opened up people and stories and place and that's what kind of going back to the beginning of our conversation that's why I travel and it is ultimately allows you to find some empathy with somebody who otherwise you know I remember when I first started this, The Economist ran a cover with Putin with the Devil's Eyes. I don't know, it's a very iconic cover, it's a brilliant cover. But I thought to myself, that may be true, but there's gotta be
0: another narrative. And there is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit about the there's a book called The Social Life of Things and the social history that objects have. And that might be you know the the table that you're you inherited or it might be the table that was made you know in post war austerity and why it was made in that style and why um, that style suddenly became fashionable but this you know music is so important to many people and this social life of the, the pianos the social history is just really fascinating i can see how you got pulled into that
1: yeah i mean it was a, a book that was real influence to the project was one called hair with the amber eyes by edmund duval and he follows a, an object to tell the biography of his family and he had a line in it, which is something like: objects will always be lost and stolen and retrieved, and bought. It is how you tell their stories that matters, and that gave me again a sort of. I read those lines, and I thought that gives me license to to travel a bit differently. You know, so much of Siberian travel writing has been dominated by. Um, you know, how tough am I in an extreme climate? And I, I wanted to move on from that because we live in the age of tourism. So it's not really about how tough anymore because there's always a helicopter, a flight, a satellite phone, and an emergency Medicare system, even in remote Russia. So, how do you tell a modern travel narrative in a remote place that is less about the eye? and more about the
0: them, so the people that you're among. That's what I really wanted to do. How do you combine this remote travel, which must happen for quite long periods at a time, with your children, and I'm not just asking you this because you're a woman. I do ask this of men. However, the male explorers I often have on have actually not managed to get married and have children. Particularly the lovely Leveson Woods We had a chat about him, and I know, I know yeah, he, yeah. he, he uh, gave a lovely quote on the on the, yeah, the dust no. jacket of your book. But we had a chat about one thing he hasn't managed to do is he's, he's you know he's missed that because he's been away so much. He's obviously he's still young, and he still might do. But he's missed out a certain amount of social life at home. You do. Have have kids, and you are doing these big exploratory travels. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's really, it's it's really tough. Um, but I am really fortunate. I met my husband when I was seventeen, so he kind of helped make the monster, if you will. Like he always <laughs> encouraged it. He's a big traveller himself. You know, he works um, he works in the expedition industry, and I have always uh, packed my children in my bags whenever I could. So you know, they've travelled to Siberia. We've camped. We spent three weeks camping up the shores of Lake Baikal. My younger son came with me to Papua New Guinea. Um, I really, really want them to see the world. And, uh, you know, being a travel writer is never going to make you rich, but if it can enrich my children, then I'm going to do everything I can to to, to, to sneak them in. Uh, the Mongolia too, it's been, it's really important. So it, uh, but that's not to underestimate the fact, yeah, sometimes I'm away for three weeks and this particular project in Russia was really tough on all of us, but it's it's what you get used to. And it's also my kind of, Honest truth is I've got a really strong family and my parents live nearby and my sister lives nearby and my husband's works from home and that makes it possible. I wouldn't be you know, I absolutely would not have been able to do it otherwise.
0: And there's different ways of being rich, aren't there? Well, Talking about travel writing not making you rich.
1: No, it doesn't make you rich, but it is rich in experiences. Oh yeah, and it's um I love the fact that my children know where chad is on the map you know that makes me really proud um it's i love the fact that when trump publishes his no go list i get a call from a brilliant american editor who says those are your assignments for the next year you know it's that's the that's what i love that's it's got nothing to do with how i'm gonna buy a louis vuitton bag (laughs) so where are your next assignments I'm up in the air at the moment. I've got something that might be happening in Socotra, which is tricky. Um, In where, sorry? Socotra, which is is that's off the coast of Yemen. So I'm struggling with what the real return is in a place that's going through humanitarian catastrophe. Um, But there is also a very, very important environmental story that needs telling there. Um, Because when the world's eyes are averted because of conflict and and the rest, um, uh, ecological... Uh, devastation can happen i want to see what's there it's a very very important area for kind of endemic species of various kinds uh what other assignments have i got coming up i want to be able to do some more work in um congo i fell in love with the congo last year i was working up in odzala up in the north in the forest there There there's some really brave people doing some really great stuff and it's a stimulating environment so i quite want to do some more work there
0: just thinking for a moment back to Siberia, how do you get around Siberia? I know about the railway, but how else do you get around?
1: Yeah, the railway is great and it's like a thread that runs right through it. Um, but it is just, and it tends to be the thing most people experience. But it is by no means the only way or, or nor should it be the only way to experience Siberia because when you go off that off that thread, it gets really exciting. You travel opportunistically. You know, I was hitching rides with oil and gas workers. I've used dog sleds around by car which is more touristic but great fun i've used a hovercraft across the lake in winter um i've used a russian research vessel to kind of go down the coast and i love the fact it hasn't been processed into just a tourism uh buy it off the shelf experience it's opportunistic and it kind of puts the uh, it puts the Zest back into this. How am I actually going to get there by the end of the day challenge, which we've kind of lost in modern culture? Do you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. The journey used to be part of the experience, isn't it? And now it's just like, let's get the airport done, you know. But people more and more are thinking of other ways to travel. Yeah. Mm. Train journeys, long train journeys, which I absolutely love for coming back because we've all got to think about the way we travel and its impact on the environment.
1: Uh, Somebody said something to me brilliantly. Um, It was a therapist who was talking to me about why I travel and the speed and am am I running away from something or running towards something. And she said to me, brilliantly, and it's like, you've got to learn to watch the trees moving past. And it's really true travel should be about sitting back not filling it with iphone junk uh, not constantly stimulating yourself so you don't actually have time to absorb and process so watching the trees moving past is going to become a really important part of the travel i hope to do where i slow down i do use more trains and i allow for the spaces in between for something to happen rather than constantly
0: seeking the quick hit and also it's a great title for your next book Oh yeah, I like that. Isn't it? Can I steal it's that? really nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Right, right I'm going to ask you my last question. My last question is always about music. And you're not a pianist, and I I have did you not get the urge to start learning the piano? Or... Yeah, huge. Yeah, I but, got a full of piano. But didn't first. do it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, maybe you can bring one of those back yeah, on a cart yeah. or something. Yeah. So the book is out now. It's called The Lost Pianos of Siberia and obviously we all know where to buy books these days but where can we get it
1: yeah I, it's it's only come out recently and it's getting some really fun critical attention and the independent news new, um bookshops are really um supporting it which is exciting because it's a it's a book that once you get into it i hope you under- it's understood as yes it's a little bit eccentric but it is um it, i hope it'll have the reputation of a hand-on I
0: read this, have you tried it kind of reputation. And we can, all, we can get it in all the usual places. Yeah, you can, yeah, yeah. Was <laughs> in all the rest, yeah, yeah. Um, my last question is always about music because I always believe that music goes hand in hand with travel. And actually we were saying then, uh, you know, it, it's the urge to not sit on your phone and to watch the trees go past when you're on the train, but a lot of people will still listen to music. And if you had to pick one song that reminded you of a special or memorable, for any reason, time and place of travel, What is that song and why? Okay, this is so unpopular. (laughs) Um,
1: But, and it came out of an experience in Russia when I was in a town called Tobolsk, which is like the quintessential Russian picture postcard. You know, it's golden couplers on a white Kremlin, the snow falling softly, and this Russian priest started to help me with something I needed some help with. And he took me into the back door of this seminary where he gathered 12 or so of his friends and they sang in their cassocks Russian choral music, which is non-instrumental, uh, with the deepest, most spine-tingling music. It is amazing. And I, if I ever want to feel good and I want to feel that gratitude for being alive... So in my high
0: points of travel, I'll turn on some, a Russian male choir. <laughs> we haven't had one of those before on the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much, Sophie. And indeed, thank you for listening to The Big Travel Podcast. Coming up, we have Travis Elbera with truly fascinating tales from the world's vanishing places and also best-selling author Victoria Hislop.